following audio is from Deering Christian Church. Join us Sunday mornings at 10.15 or check us out at DeeringChristian.org. It's been a few years ago that, that Donna and I entered a realm that to this point in our lives we had only um, read about or heard people discuss. And no, I'm not talking about parenthood. That, that's been a little while ago now. What I'm talking about is the realm of the mortgage. Okay? I've got a question for you. How many of you here have no longer have a, a mortgage? That is behind you. It's over and done with. I got to put my hand down. All right. We probably ought to clap for those guys too now. You don't have to, all right? Um, that, that, is, that is a pretty neat place to be, and that's a place that, that we look forward very much to being in. And we're sacrificing quite a bit to see that come as soon as possible. Well, once that time comes in life, and all of a sudden you've got this chunk of money on a monthly, monthly basis that for a number of years has been going towards that thing you're living in, and all of a sudden that's done, okay, and you're like, what do we do with that money? Like, what do we do with it, all right? Well, it, it, this is what you do with it. You spend it on your grandkids, right? <laughs> you invest it. That's what you do. So you got to have a plan, a good plan in place to invest that house payment. See, up to that point, you're investing in that home. Well, that's over and done with. Well, Don and I have plans, Okay. We have plans. That day will come one day. She's planning on it coming sooner than probably me, and that's good. All right? She is definitely a sacrificer when it comes to finances, and she's rubbed off on me some. Um, this is Donna's plan because I understand this because I've, I've known past plans and kind of way things are. It's probably um, right now CDs are getting a little better. You know, the, the, that, that payout's getting a little better. Not much better, but a little bit better. Um, CDF, the Church Development Fund, um, you, if you want a place to put money where you get an incredible dividend out of it, as well as putting money towards churches being built, that's pretty cool, you know, that might be something. She's probably thinking along those planes, maybe stock, I don't even know stock, I don't know anything about stock market or anything like that. Um, so that's kind of her plan. You want to hear my plan? A 1970 Camaro. Yes, hallelujah, that's an investment. I mean, that's an investment. You know what those things are worth now, hon? And then we probably won't ever sell it till I'm gone, and then you can sell it, you know? But because um, but, but, she'll, she'll probably outlive me. Um, she's much more healthy than me. But I was just thinking that, you know, as we put this money into that investment, you know, it's not only an investment that might pay dividends one day, but it'll be so much fun, and it'll be so fast going down the road, and it'll be a ministry opportunity, all of those, all of those things. As you can see, our investment plans might not look exactly the same, and um, we'll have to continue to work on that as that day once um, sometime down the line approaches. We're going to look at a parable today, and a parable is, is simply a story told that, that has a point. You could call it, some people call them fables, but Jesus took it to a whole new level in his parables. 
And most of his parables had to do, it was, it was a story that, that would be understandable by everyone in his audience, because it usually touched pretty close to life. But yet, it would most often have kingdom principles, meaning this. At the core of it, the hidden message was always about God's kingdom. Here on earth and beyond. And the parable we're going to look at today comes out of Luke chapter 20, verses 9 through 18, if you want to get there. all right, Luke chapter 20, it's the third of the Gospels. It's the third book in the New Testament. Um, you see, it's probably about... Three quarters of the way through in my Bible, probably somewhere close to yours. You're not sure where that's at? Look it up in the table of contents and get there, all right? Luke was a follower of Jesus. Luke was not a disciple of Jesus. Um, He's actually kind of more came in line under Paul years later. Um, But Luke was a doctor, and he was very thorough in what he had to to write in his accounts of Jesus. Um. As we look at this today, I think we could probably say that this particular parable of Jesus was an investment parable. But it's it's not a parable about the investment that we put into something. It's a parable really specifically about the investment of our Heavenly Father. This is what has taken place prior to Jesus telling this story. This is very, very important, okay? It's a very important time. It is a critical time for our lives as well in the time in the life of Jesus. You see, it was the last week. We call it the Passion Week. What that means is Jesus went to Jerusalem knowing that the end of that Jerusalem trip would end with him on a cross. And he came to Jerusalem... And it was, it was, I mean, it was scary. The last time he left Jerusalem, it did not go well. And his, his followers knew that if he showed back up, there was going to be trouble. But interestingly enough, when he came to Jerusalem this time, there was a party going on. Now, it was near the Passover, and I'm not talking about just the Passover festivities. I'm saying this. Jesus' popularity had reached such a height that when he showed up in town, actually riding on the colt of a donkey... People were laying their garments on the ground for the donkey to walk across, waving palm branches, shouting Hosanna to Hosanna. I mean, it was a big, big deal. And the thing that was interesting about this, Jesus wasn't really acting like Jesus. Because in the past, when people tried to do those sorts of things, Jesus kind of, he, he kind of it's like he was shy from it. Now we know that's not really the case, but that's what an observer might have thought. He would kind of shy away from that and back off from it a little bit. When the crowds got a little too worked up, he kind of faded into the background. And this time he wasn't doing that. He's riding the donkey. He's in the middle of it, seemingly enjoying it. That just isn't like what he's done in the past. And he goes right from that procession into town, into the temple, for the second time in his ministry. first time happened about three years earlier to begin his ministry. Now his ministry is drawing to a close. He went to the temple and he cleansed the temple. And I'm not saying that he took comment and washed the stones, okay? What I'm saying is he threw out the money changers, the crooked Things that were taking place there. The way that the the hierarchy, the religious hierarchy, were taking advantage of people. And he was sick of it. And he overturned tables. He he made a, he just, it was a circus. And he put it into the circus. And I'm sure that there were those who were watching what was taking place, not liking it one single bit. Now this had happened previous to this. It's a day or two later that Jesus 
is confronted by the religious leaders, the Pharisees. And they have a question for him. And this is their question. Who gave you the right to do these things? These things meaning to, to, to come in and soak up all of this, this praise, as people shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, and, and, and cleansing the temple. Who gave you the authority and the right to do this? Well, Jesus has an answer for them. It comes from Luke 20. Now, we're going to go just a few verses previous to verse 9. Jesus doesn't answer their question. He asks a question of his own. Verses 3 and 4. Jesus answered and said to them, I will ask you a question and you will tell me. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Now, remember, John is dead now. But John is the one who came before Jesus to prepare his way. And John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, John, um, I like the way Larry Osborne puts it, John the Dunker, okay, because that's what he was, that's what baptized means. And, and he was out there preaching, and he was an incredibly popular preacher, not because he tried to tickle the ears of the people who were listening to him. Man, he was like, he was like fire and brimstone guy, all right? I mean... You're wearing camel hair and you're, you're eating bugs, okay? You're just going to expect that's the fire and brimstone preacher right there, all right? And people went in droves out into the countryside to hear him preach. And he was massively, massively popular. So Jesus has a question for the Pharisees, and his question is this. The baptism that he was performing, you see, John was not really supposed to do that. That was kind of a, because there were baptisms in the Jewish, in the Jewish tradition, Right? And that was the job of the priests, and yet you got this guy in camel hair out in the middle of nowhere doing it. And Jesus says, his baptism, was it from man or was it from God? So the Pharisees get in their little huddle. And they're like, well, we can't say that it's from God, because then Jesus is going to ask, well, how come it's from God? How come you didn't get baptized? We can't say, is it from man? Because we say it's from man. John still got some big-time followers here, and they believe that John was a prophet from God. So if we say that, they might stone us. (laughs) So here's their answer. Verse 7. So they answered that they didn't know. We don't know where it came from. And Jesus says, all right then, I'm not answering your question. You want to answer my question? I'm not answering yours. And the interesting thing about it does, he does answer their question with a story. So let's look at it. Luke chapter 20, beginning with verse 9. This is what it has to say. Then he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard. One thing, guys, Jesus is speaking to the people. They are all Jews, many of them hardcore Jews, okay? But he's more specifically speaking this parable to the Pharisees who just asked them the question, by whose authority are you doing these things? All right? So they are smart enough. They know that when Jesus talks about a vineyard, he's not talking about a vineyard. Through Old Testament law, more importantly, Old Testament prophecy, it was very clear that God often considered and called the nation of Israel his vineyard. So as Jesus is telling the story, what they hear is this. 
Israel, a man planted a vineyard. Israel. He rented it out to vine growers and then went away for a long time. Now, Matthew 21, we find in that chapter, you don't have to turn there, I'll tell you though, this, this same parable told. But Matthew gives a few more details about it. You see, uh, Matthew was, was, he was a Jew and, and um, these details very much mattered to him. And in that parable, he gives a little more detail, meaning this. This man built this vineyard. He not only built a vineyard, he built a wine press inside the vineyard. So in other words, you could do the work right there where it was safe. And why was it safe there? Because he also built a wall around the vineyard with a watchtower for guards over it. So what I'm telling you is this. This is an incredibly well-built, well-thought-out vineyard. And a tremendous amount of investment went into it. So he planted this vineyard, he, he made this thing, he rented it out to vine growers and went away on a journey. This is something that took place every year among Jesus' audience. They would understand this. And it was basically like what we would probably call a sharecropper. Okay, You own it, but you're not the one planting the wheat, the corn, and the beans. Somebody else does that, and when they're done, they get their share and you get your share. It's basically what's taking place here. He found the people to work it, and he left. Verse 10. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers so that they would give him some of the produce of the vineyard. But the vine growers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Servant number one. And he proceeded to send another slave, and they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. Servant number two. He proceeded to send a third, and this one they also wounded and cast out, which basically means they killed him. Okay? Servant number three. The owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I only got so many servants here. (laughs) What shall I do? I know what I'll do. I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. Sounds crazy, huh? What kind of vineyard owner would do something like this? But he's thinking, they're going to respect my son. He's my son. Verse 14. When the vine growers saw him, they reasoned with one another, saying, this is the heir. They're like, the son's coming. The dad must be dead. Otherwise, the dad would have come. So if the dad's dead and he sent the son, if we, if we kill the son, whose vineyard's this going to be? Possession is nine-tenths of the law, right? It's ours! They reason with another, saying, this is the heir. Let us kill them so that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Now it's interesting the way Luke writes this out. Jesus asks a question. And I am guessing when you put the other accounts of this parable with it that he gave plenty of time for a response to be made. And 
And then Jesus answers the question himself. He will come and destroy these vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. When they heard it, they said, may it never be. Now I've got a question for you. If Jesus is just simply telling a story for the purpose of telling a story to entertain, why in the world would the people listening to the story, specifically the Pharisees, say, no way? Because what kind of sense does that make? Let's pretend this actually takes place. Would not the vineyard owner come and absolutely destroy the people who treated his servants and now his son in that way? Who would look at it and say, that's crazy? And yet what we have here is the people saying, may it never be. Because they understand who Jesus is talking about. They understand exactly who he's talking about. But when Jesus looked at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. But on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. The stone, it's interesting, we talked about this a little bit this past Wednesday night in our Romans class. This stone, this cornerstone, depending upon what your Bible says, some of your Bibles might say capstone, some of them might say cornerstone. It's the same word in the Greek. A cornerstone was the stone that was laid. It was the first laid stone when building a building or a home. And that stone was very important. It had to be just right and it had to be placed just right because it was that stone that would set the parameters for the walls of the house to be built. That's the cornerstone. And then you have the capstone. The capstone is the last stone placed on top of a structure to lock everything together. What Jesus is saying is this. The cornerstone, the foundation, the thing that holds everything together has been given to Israel. And they looked at it and said, nah, don't think I want to use it. Toss it aside. And that cornerstone was Jesus. Jesus, days before, is once again predicting what is about to take place. So when we look at this parable, when we look at this story told by Jesus, specifically to those Pharisees who are listening there is something being said between the lines. Jesus is like, it's like, you know, people like this, they tell you a story, but then what they're really telling you is behind the story. You know what I mean? You know, there's some people who are better than that at others. They're telling you the story, but you realize about halfway through the story that like, whoa, you talking about me? You're telling a story here about a dog and a cat who got in a fight in the backyard and the cat ended up a tree and a dog ended up in the pond. But you're talking about me, right? Right? Okay? And these people figured it out that Jesus was talking about them. And here is what Jesus was really saying to them and maybe to someone else as well. What Jesus was saying, there's four things. Number one, if you're a fourth or sixth grader and got your sheet in front of you, get ready. 
all right? What Jesus was saying, first of all, number one was this. You have failed to fulfill your side of the contract. Jesus is speaking here with the leaders of Israel of the day. Okay? And God was all about contracts, but really what he was about was covenants. Okay? But since we're talking in the terms of an investment here, we will use contract. And the vineyard owner put a tremendous amount of investment to build something that would produce and produce well. And the people he put in charge of it were not keeping their end of the bargain. You see, God always expects a return from his investments. What was Jesus saying? First of all, he's saying this, you have failed to fulfill your side of the contract. Number two. Jesus was saying, my father, because the people listening knew exactly who he's talking about. My father has an incredible amount of patience. An incredible amount of patience. Um, how many, including the son, how many servants and son were sent? We went through that, remember? Four total. Okay. Make sure I got that right. I think I got that right. Now, I'm not going to have you turn here, but in, in Amos chapter 1, there is something written there by, by the prophet Amos. And um, what, what he, he wrote there was something that some of the religious leaders previous to Jesus' day had grabbed a hold of and had, had continued to carry it out and had followed through the generations, and it was this. In, in, in Amos chapter 3, it was talking about Amos was prophesying on the part of the Lord about the destruction that would come to those who persecuted the nation of Israel throughout history. And he said this. He, he, he says this phrase again and again and again throughout the first part of the book of Amos. It's this. For three transgressions and for four, I will not withhold my punishment. So what the religious leaders did, took from that, was saying, three times, somebody stabs you in the back, it's okay. But number four, it's over and done with then. All right? Now, I'm not sure that's the best interpretation in the world, but that's the one they came away with. All right? So what we have here is this vineyard owner sends one servant, sends another servant, sends another servant. How many times that? So the vineyard owner comes and levels the place, kills him, right? No, he sends a fourth. And the fourth is his son. See, God has a tremendous amount of patience. Guys, so many of the prophets from the Old Testament were rejected and some of them killed by the people they were trying to to give the message of God to. Jesus himself said, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, the one that 
stones the prophets and kills those who were sent to you to get your attention. How often I've wanted to gather you like a hen gathers his chicks under her wings. See, God's patience is huge. Amen? And I'm glad. But God's patience does have an end. Number three. What Jesus was saying. It's kind of tough to amaze Jesus, but he was amazed. Your arrogance is amazing. Let me tell you something. If you were a servant in those days, or if you were a typical wage earner in those days, meaning this, you went to the marketplace in the morning and were given work, hopefully, so that your family could eat that night. If you were a part of that class, there's one particular class of people that you did not get on their bad side. And that was the landowners. Because they're the ones hiring you. They're the ones with the power. Okay, This landowner had so much power that he not only built a vineyard, he put a wall around it, a watchtower on top of it, and put a wine press inside of it, all to protect his investment. It's not the guy you want to mess with. All right? But they didn't care. They ridiculed. They tortured servants. They killed the landowner's son. And they said to themselves, we'll be landowners ourselves. We'll take the vineyard for ourselves. We'll become landowners ourselves. Now in the grander scheme of things, what Jesus was saying here, was if you continue to reject God's message and kill those that God sends to you, it's because you want control over something that is not yours. You want to be like God. You know, there's one spiritual entity in particular whose downfall was that. His name is Lucifer, Beelzebub, Satan, the devil, Where's the number of titles? Angel of light? Because he is an angel. And we're told in the Old Testament that he fell because not because he wanted to destroy God, but because he wanted to be like God. And what did he tell that great, 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 great grandma and grandpa of all of us? He says, yeah, the father doesn't want you to eat the tree or eat the fruit from that tree because the father knows that if you eat of it, you'll become like him. Arrogance. Romans chapter 1 is chock full of it. How the world does not give God his due. And tries to replace God's image with something else. Namely themselves. And how when that happens, society after society goes downhill. Happens every time. Every single time. 
And I cannot imagine anything else but God just scratching his head and saying, how can these people be so arrogant? Lastly, what Jesus was saying is this. What you had will be given to others who are more worthy. You can see it in the history of our world. We're going to get on a grander scheme than personal here just for a second. And then we're going to bring it back down to personal. Nations don't last when they forget God. If you're not a student of history, I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt, that's the truth. And I say, well, they've lasted several hundred years. Hey, that's a baby nation, okay? (laughs) All right? Question I have to ask myself, who... I am a part of of God's kingdom as you are as well. And this world isn't our home. And yet I also happen to be the citizen of a nation that I very much appreciate. and Try not to take for granted. And it hurts me when I see that nation continually turning its back collectively more and more away from God. And the question I have to ask myself is this. Has God blessed this nation? I think absolutely. But if the vineyard workers reject what has been given to them, what they have will be given to others. And the question I have to ask myself on a national level is this. Is what am I doing to change my culture? And I'm not talking about going to any sort of rally or doing any sort of protest here. That's not what I'm talking about. Now, that's necessarily a bad thing, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about what am I doing personally to change and affect positively my culture? Because we often like to stand on a stump and rah-rah for taking stands for things. But if that is not combined with a love for those who oppose my social view, then my stand is worthless. What am I doing personally to change my culture? What am I doing to love people who don't look or think like I do? It's not our job to change people. It's Jesus' job. It's our job to introduce them to Jesus so they can be changed. Christmas is coming. You realize that? It is. I remember, I maybe it was JB talking about it last week, a couple weeks ago. Yes, he's exactly right. I walked into Walmart. Big old Christmas tree. The greeter already had like this, this, this Christmas thing going, you know, little, little Christmas tree bulbs, you know, things. And I'm just like, wow, 
It's like, last week you look like Dracula, this week you look like an elf. I mean, that's crazy. Christmas is coming, and Christmas brings with it some amazing things. It does every year. I don't know if, if any of you have a grandma like this. I have an adopted grandma like this who would make me things. She was my grandma by blood, but she was my grandma by Jesus. Just put it that way, all right? And, and grew up in church with her, and she would, she would make me things. That I did not wear school. (laughs) And every one of those things was made with love. And given with love. I know some of you out there, you're just waiting for the next Christmas sweater contest. Because you're not wearing what grandma made for you normally. Okay? But you can win something with that sucker. Okay? But I promise you. Grandma put that together or found that, because there's so many more grandmas now who are doing their shopping in Amazon than sewing the stuff, all right? And she found it somewhere. I don't know where all those different light bulbs came on it and stuff, you know. She found it somewhere, and she gave it with love. God's number one investment. Let's leave the vineyard just for a moment. God's number one investment to his people. And into this world. So adequately placed in John 3.16. For God so loved the world. So loved the world. That he gave his only begotten. His one and only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish. But have life eternally. God's motivation for putting so much into me and into you, was because he loves us. And the question we have to ask ourselves regularly is what is God getting out of his investment in me? Because God expects something out of his investments. Is he in charge of my life? Is he running my life on a daily basis? Is that what's going on? Is he running my life or am I simply being a Jesus follower in this way? I'm wearing the name Jesus follower. That's what a Christian is. A Christian is a Jesus follower. And I'm wearing it like that sweater grandma gave me for Christmas. God put a lot into us, people, brothers and sisters. He did it because he loves you. God wants to see something come out of that investment.